Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Before we get started, I want to draw attention to a crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be starting. I've been doing this podcast for so many years, and I know a lot of you have been enjoying my content and asking for ways you can give back and help out. This is going to be a big one that you can do. In the show notes, you're going to see a link to a website that's going to show you what I'm working on, kind of the concept, the vision that I'm working with. And if you sign up, if you share it with your friends, you'll get a chance even if you don't partake in the crowdfunding campaign to win what I'm, I'm making. And what I'm making is an advanced modern hive that'll make it so bees can live and thrive, beekeepers and bee researchers can be connected through data and sensory units put inside the hive so that you can know what's going on in your hive 24-7. So it's easier, there's less confusion, and much, much, much more, but I don't want to get into that now. Without, just check the show notes, sign up, tell your friends. It's really easy. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I can't do this without your help. So please help me out. Today, we are joined with Dawn Musil. She is the co-founder of Hiveland, an online platform to connect beekeepers and farmers to ensure optimal pollination and to feed the future. Now, for many of you who are maybe beginning, getting exposed to pollinators for the first time in this series, you're quickly picking up on the fact that one third of our food is produced and helped to be produced through pollinated insects. Bees amount to about 50, uh, 80% of that. So what Dawn is working on is really fascinating. We also get into how she found her way into doing that. Um, she started her way out, just a little tease, and Venture for America, which is this amazing opportunity for people in college to find their way into companies and going into these cities that need a lot of help. And she's also a freelance writer. So in this episode, we're going to get into what she's working on, how she got there. And it's really a lot of fun. Uh, Dawn is an amazing person to talk with, and I hope she's a lot of fun to listen to. So without further ado, let's get into this. I'm, I'm always curious, especially since like this series is definitely going to revolve, revolve around like different aspects of beekeeping and what people are up to. I'm curious, like what originally brought you into beekeeping and what keeps you fascinated about them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I grew up on a farm as well. Um, but I grew up in Apple Orchard. Um, we had bees. I started beekeeping when I was 14. I went to bee school and I was like the only one in my bee school that was under the age of 40 and also the only girl. So, um, you know, just got to just got to lean into that fully. Um, and, but it was so much fun. I got to learn about um, you know, why we needed them for helping our apple orchard and for taking care of them. I got paired with a mentor. Um, so I was apprenticing with him. Um, and it just really got me interested because I was also homeschooled. So I would just like sit out there and watch the bees for hours sometimes and just loved every bit of it. Um, and then kind of, you know, started to learn a bit about like the pollination economics, watching them go to flowers and then, you know, understanding that like other neighbors needed to rent these hives as well. 
Um, so it was kind of a whole fascinating and very large part of my upbringing um, growing up out in the farm. So it is really just fed into what I enjoy doing now. Um, got a little bit away from it in college. I still worked at an insectary. I still helped with the bees at Ohio State when I was there. But um, my kind of passion was rekindled when I joined Venture for America. So it's just been a, a pretty consistent theme, um, but at some point stronger than others. So be in love with bees. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's by, it was uh, somewhat popularized by John Green in his um, mastery book. I don't know if you've read this. It's a nonfiction book, so you're more in line with uh, what you like to read. So to <laughs> but the the basic uh, one of the, the thing I'm trying to reference is that he talks about these primal inclinations, which are these things that you liked as a kid that if you stick to mm-hmm. or like that you listen to, like you tend to be really really good at. It's a it kind of it's like the stuff that like Bill Gates when he was young he liked coding and that kind of like made his you know granted he had a lot of opportunity to learn more about coding in that time period but when he went to work on it yeah. like kept him like driven to learn more and more and more and so it seems like you were able to tap in at a young age and find like your love of bees uh, on an apple farm which is pretty cool i don't know if any of them ever you know bumped you on your head to help you uh, also find a love of science <laughs> but the, but i'm curious the, I love that. It, was there ever any other like venues or avenues that you wanted to go down like, did you ever yeah, want to become absolutely. like a, I don't know, a mechanic? And then like the bees brought you back? <laughs> I, um, my undergrad was in biochemistry. So I was actually going down the path of, um, of studying medicine. Um, mostly, I think the largest component of that was just like a security aspect to it. I was really interested in uh, medicine uh, because I had a lot of health issues as, an, as a kid and that drove me in that direction. But more than anything, it was like a job stability aspect. Um, and then I started learning. I, I got a, an entrepreneurial opportunity in college with a pitch competition, learned about the world of entrepreneurship and how you can kind of create your own career. Um, and that really turned me back towards bees um, because that, that project was focused on bees and then um, now eventually ag tech. Mm-hmm. What was the, entre- uh, the, when did you find your way into Venture for America? I, I know you, that was like one of the big things that opened your eyes to like these uh, tinier cities, which is where you found your way into Baltimore. Like, how'd you mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. like the entrepreneur experience where you did the pitch where you learned about Venture for America or like, how'd you like yeah. learn about them? Yeah. So this starts back, this starts on a boat in an ocean far, far away. <laughs> um, I was on a study abroad program doing my research thesis. Um, so I'd gotten the scholarship to do all study abroad on semester at sea, um, which is like you live on a ship and you sail around um, and t- do port um, in like 12 different countries. Um, but on that was, there was a, a track you could take in this program that was like entrepreneurship track. And so I was taking that and learning about social entrepreneurship in Vietnam and social entrepreneurship projects in Ghana. And then at the very last leg of the voyage, they had us do a pitch competition. Like, you know, think about all the experiences you've had and and is there some problem that you are looking to solve in these places and how could you do it so that was when I um, had the first idea with bees it was called be the change because be yeah. puns. Um, um, but it was using beekeeping to teach low-income women um, entrepreneurial skills and help them with their English so they're like refugee women and then they could get the sales um, from the hot byproducts like lotions soaps things like that that's something that I used to do as a kid um, and then I figured, hey, we could um, we could try this. So 
won that pitch competition. And that get, put me on a path towards realizing this entrepreneurship stuff is really cool. Um, and that was as a resolution fellow. And they actually had a partnership with Venture for America. So after I graduated, um, I, I spent a little bit of time um, abroad with bees and then came back and did Venture for America. On, a, on the spectrum, and this is this is like a made up spectrum, but like on the spectrum of like social entrepreneurship to like uh, like strip mining the land, like do you tend to like <laughs> do you tend to like go towards more social entrepreneurship where you like things that have a cause behind them and it's not just like like a for profit motive, even if it is a for profit. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. And that's actually um, I feel like that's an interesting topic because a lot of times people hear social entrepreneurship and they think like charity or nonprofit. Um, but the cool thing about social entrepreneurship is that it's much more of a sustainable concept. You know, we're moving away from NGOs to for-profit social responsibility or corporate social responsibility. Just like we're creating a different narrative around it. And I think it's becoming more sustainable than ever before to, to be socially impactful. Mm-hmm. Especially, I, I feel like we're the same age. Like we're both millennials. So like, um, it'd be weird if you were not a millennial, like one of those gen... <laughs> Gen Z's or something. <laughs> so like Gen, yeah. He's <laughs> just like a prodigy. But the, um, oh, the, uh, these days though, you know. Yeah, you know, it's weird that I feel old. Like I'm like, I'm 27. It's <laughs> like there's another generation beneath me already. Like I, I you know, like I feel like, <laughs> like waiting only like five years. But I'm, I lost my question <laughs> in thinking that you're a millennial. The, um, what was it? It involves, oh, okay. So like people our, our age, they tend to want to pay more for quality. Like the 50s, to 80s, I think people just like wanted like a certain level of quality, but it, like they were fine if it had like really crappy business practices behind it. And nowadays, like people want like there's like how many artisanal like bakeries are there? Like it's the same as a normal bakery, but like they have that name in there. Mm-hmm. And so like people go there because I yeah. think that people are putting more effort into it. And I know personally, mm-hmm. like if I if I had like two options, one that was someone doing something that costs a little bit more, but it was more it was beneficial for people and. And I think I even referenced uh, in our in our pre-talk that like if I were to manufacture some, I do it in the United States versus like outsourcing to China because I think that there are like better standards for workers here than in China. And so like people, even though that would cost more to build it in America for the most part, like most people would would be like, oh, okay, sweet. Like you're going to be great to your workers. It's going to be held to a higher standard and all these other things. Like, you know what? I'm not going to do any like, you know, uh, unethical like dumping in the, the water supply or something like that. Though I think people still mm-hmm. do that in America. We, we need to really work on that. As a random anecdote, <laughs> to, before I get to my question, the Mississippi is like the third most polluted river in the world. But I'm, um, yeah, crazy. Which is crazy, right? Yeah, it's like, that's like, that's literally the heart of America. Like that's like the little uh, uh, ventricle that's coming out. And it's like this polluted thing and people don't really fish in it. It used to be like this big thing. I think we should all like, one of my goals is like in my life is to like clean that up. So that people can like fish and have like communities around it, which would be like, that's like, I think a good example of the social entrepreneurship because like you can clean up the, the river and make money and like have like these, these communities around it where like you're able to fish and do all these things, which you wouldn't have if you weren't socially conscious of it. Like if you were just like strip mining land and like walking away from it, like you wouldn't see like all these other opportunities that are like not short term, but in like long term, which I think is what mm-hmm. I was trying to get mm-hmm. at, which I think more people nowadays are getting towards because they're realizing without sustainability, it's not sustainable, which is kind of like an obvious thing. But for the longest time, apparently was not obvious to people. You know, yeah. it, it was yeah. 
I think it was like um, as as late as early as like we 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 finally took lead out of water, like in the eighties, like late eighties. Like it took us hundreds of years to think, hey, we mm-hmm. should remove lead from water, and then it was in paint and all this other stuff. But so I think social yeah. entrepreneurship, yeah. and especially with in your experience, like, um, do you see it like? especially in venture for America, do you see a, a lot of people be, are tending towards more social entrepreneurship versus strip mining or maybe not specifically for venture America in case it does go strip mining, but like in general, do you see people going more that way or like, how do yeah. you, how are you seeing yeah. it in your communities? Um, I think honestly, in general, it's a lot of, um, I, I think it's a little bit of like both. I would almost say split down the middle because a lot of times people are, a lot of times the people that I see starting companies at young ages or who are building something project, you know, even just a passion project, they are passionate about that for a reason. And usually it is more of a drive towards something that is either sustainability or, um, you know, solving food issues or poverty issues, like global issues and tackling those with an innovative entrepreneur solution. But to be honest, on the flip side, I also see a lot of people who are interested in, like building a company or people who just want to build a company for the sake of, of all that they think comes with that. Um, Silicon Valley, you know, kind of really romanticized the idea of starting a company. Um, and, you know, with that making a lot of money, we think of, you know, Zuckerberg is like this pinnacle. He's an anomaly, not a standard, but um, I would definitely say across the board, you get half and half. Some people are just diehard passionate about solving social issues through entrepreneurship and then some people who genuinely do just want to find out um, if they can make money and, and follow that kind of trajectory. I feel like that's definitely like, uh, see that. I'm sorry for interrupting. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. Go ahead. So I feel like I, I've heard of so many of my friends, not a lot of, I tend to like gravitate more towards like social entrepreneurship personally. And like to some extent, my social circles uh, tend to emulate that. But like the ones that have found success, like if they don't immediately try, like they just like go to try to make money and like they have that initial success of like whatever million, like they almost go like crazy. Like they're like, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do? <laughs> what do I do now? And then they like, they take a moment, they take a step back and then they find that passion project. So like it usually is like mm-hmm. almost like, uh, like going from like a larva to like the chrysalis to like the moth or whatever. Like it seems like a staging where like the people even in the way like you kind of characterize it, it's like they, they try to like capture what that bottle, like that lightning in the bottle that someone else has described to them. And it's like, it's like a false image because like that, especially like, I mean, you said it really, really well, like Zuckerberg is an anomaly. And so anything that describes like how Zuckerberg got his success isn't really translatable to like how anyone else builds something else, but you can listen to it or read a biography about someone and get like a sense of how they would take, and handle the situation and then that kind of becomes like a subconscious thing that'll help you make decisions which is very valuable which mm-hmm. is like, but at the same time like you can't use it as like a map you know like how zuckerberg became successful is not how anyone else is going to be successful even if they're doing the exact same thing so and with that like if yeah. you have like yeah. a very meaning centered approach i don't have you read a good like i think like that it embodies what we're talking about is this book called a man's search for meaning by Victor E. Frankel, mm-hmm. have you by chance read that? Mm-hmm. No, I have not. Actually, just had a friend mention that though the other day. So it's really I'm good. Kidding. It's horrific though, but it's, it's really good. The, <laughs> the, uh, for people listening, it's basically a a Jewish psychiatrist survives Auschwitz, 
and how he finds meaning in that. And so it's like, if he, if he, if he can find meaning in his life, then you and whatever you're struggling with, not just you, you know, Don, you listener, uh, anything you're struggling with, it's like, you can find that pause and find that, that space to find out um, what's going on. And I think there's a, one of my favorite quotes comes from him, which is like the, 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 there's a space in between like an action and reaction. Like when you say something, I respond to it or anything in your life. And in that pause, we define who we are. And so like, mm-hmm. it's a really good book. I recommend it, but what are some awesome. other things you learned? Yeah. Oh, where you can say something, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, it just made me think of, of the fact that, you know, people who have that, who find that meeting and who have kind of a mission driven focus, um, they just find it a lot easier to, to handle the things that are going to come their way. You know, you know, everyone knows entrepreneurship is a, a messy, messy process. So when you have a vision or mission behind what you're doing, it, it definitely helps. It kind of, it's like a North star. Like if you have like, mm-hmm. if it's like, I need to make money, then it's like, all right, well, you got to take it. Like at, at some point you either like have to take advantage of someone or like keep like finding and like ways to like cut costs, which is like that level of monotony. Like some people really love it. Like I'm sure there's like accountants who like get like huge like nerdiness about like finding ways of like saving money. <laughs> like for like yeah. the average person, it's like that big North star. Like I want to make so, you know, 40% of bees did not die last year. Or I want to help bee, uh, uh, farmers find beekeepers to put, you know, stuff on their land so that they can have better crop yields. Like, which thus uh, will support, you know, people in Africa because uh, in the United States, like every farmer feeds everyone in America plus like 150 people in throughout the world. Like we, we like have this massive surplus, but Mm -hmm. if it's just money motivated, like how do you like, like, like incentivize making more food to save other people? But like, I think people can understand like suffering and like wanting to help people in that way. I'm curious, um, to get off the the suffering line, but what are some what are some things that like Venture for America has taught you that has prepared that prepared you for Hiveland? Because I I think I noticed on your LinkedIn that you were in Venture for America, sorry, for like uh, two and a half years, and then like two years ago you started Hiveland. So I feel like one came before the other, and then I'm curious like how one helps you in developing the other one. Yeah, yeah. So it um, probably reads a little confusingly because they kind of did happen simultaneously. Um, Venture for America, um, for people who don't know, is an amazing program that connects um, recent college grads with opportunities in the startup space in cities like Baltimore, Detroit, St. Louis. Um, And there's 14 cities, but that's just to name a few. And what they do the summer beforehand, though, is they have training camps. We joke it's just adult summer camp, but it's very, very useful, and you meet some of the coolest people. Um, it's your class of 200 is your your yearly cohort of Venture for America fellows, and we have classes from IDEO, McKinsey. Um, we have a boot camp, like a coding boot camp from Flatiron, um, like a lot of like regimented challenges um, in kind of a uh, MBA format, but over a shorter time period, and in that um, training session, I actually met my co-founder, Nick, um, who was also, who had also matched with a company in Baltimore, um, which worked out perfectly. Um, and that's when we kind of started, you know, brainstorming, talking about our passion for bees, our background, and realizing there could be a lot of synergy here. Um, so that was kind of how it all started. But then throughout um, Venture for America, we've been working full-time at our jobs and then working just part-time on Hiveland. Um, only recently have I gone um, full-time on it. So it's, it's been kind of exciting to, to see that 
to shift and also just to be so supported by uh, not just the community of fellows, but Venture for America itself. They have been pivotal in helping us understand how in the world starting a company even works, mm-hmm. um, let alone building traction, getting customers, understanding how to grow, um, which is what we're working on now. Is uh, what was a uh, what's like the best time to start thinking about getting to Venture for America? Or if you're like a junior in college, is that the right time to start applying? Or is it like something that you'd apply for when you're a senior? I know it's for like postgraduates, but like, is there like a, an optimal mm-hmm. time that you would like anyone listening? Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Definitely. Yeah. I am um, trying to get my little brother to apply for it now. He's a senior. So um, seniors in college, you can usually the application process. So there's like four deadlines um, within starting actually the first deadline just passed is like September 1st. And then there's three more throughout the year. Um, so I'd recommend doing it senior year. Um, it's a much easier application and I think far more worth it than any of the other job opportunities um, that are out there just because it comes with a community, uh, leadership development, mentorship, a job as well. Um, but it's, it's all the components surrounding that that really are just pivotal in, in even if you're not wanting to build a company, at least learning about and understanding how to be the best at a startup that you work at. Mm-hmm. I know like, when I first heard about it and I, I heard about it from the people at Yield Lab, um, I was like, what? This type of thing exists. Connie Bowen. Hmm? Is it, did you learn about it from Connie Bowen? Yes. Connie, yeah. And David Yoakum. Okay, yeah. Connie's amazing. Love her. She's absolutely wonderful human. Great mentorship on the ag tech front. She's wonderful. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, for for anyone listening, I'll put those links in the, the show notes as well. And we had, uh, we had um, Sherry was on the podcast, one of the partners at the Yield Lab. And uh, she was fun, oh, phenomenal. Yeah. Like she has like 20 years in ag, ag tech. Um, well, agriculture, mm-hmm. like Monsanto and stuff. So she like, it, it was, I can see the value of Venture for America and what it offered if people like Sherry and Connie were there. Because it's like, mm-hmm. there were there were so many moments when Sherry was talking, I was like, oh God, I have to say something, but I want to write this down. Like, she's like so wise. <laughs> like, and a lot of people yeah. listening were like, you know, she had like actionable, because like sometimes you get mentor- mentorship or like someone will give you advice and you're like, Go talk to customers. It's like, all right, all right, okay. Um, any suggestions <laughs> on how I talk to customers? Is it like uh, when you went to talk to customers, is there a way you thought about it? You know, like that. there's like a way to give advice that's actually helpful. Like everyone knows like, you know, work hard, be seen to be industrious and all these other things. And that kind of goes to like the beginning of the Ben Franklin book by Walter Isaacson or the autobiography by Ben mm-hmm. Franklin himself. He said like, all these things you're about to read about, like they're not going to be that unique because you've heard about them your entire life. You know, you've heard about getting up early, doing all these things. The only difference is I actually did them. And so you can see like the, like how that (laughs) goes through and like how to like use those uh, subtle strategies. But yeah, other than the, yeah. um, Well, yeah. Yeah. I'd recommend the book for anyone who wants to check it out. The, was there anything specific? I know you were, you were saying like growth, Um, anything specific that venture for America taught you and you could talk about like how they taught you it. I guess the bootcamp was probably the biggest way, but um, that and like how it's translated over into Hiveland that we could like learn more about Hiveland. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one of the the most important things that um, I don't I don't think Venture for America intentionally taught this. I think this is something I just have taken away from it and feel very supported by what we've learned um, is to be really, really, really intentional about where your capital is coming from. Uh, for starting your company. And um, I think a lot of my idea of of entrepreneurship was very romanticized again by like 
you know, your, your friends and family round and then your seed rounds and series A and B and, you know, these, you know, what's going to happen if we have a down round, all these like the, the funding aspects surrounding it when what was truly emphasized was none of this matters. This, this game of building a company doesn't matter if you don't have customers and you don't know how to make money and you should try and do that without getting anyone to invest in your idea see if you can bootstrap this first. And I know that doesn't work for everyone, um, but it really just reiterated the idea to me of, you know, would I start this company if I didn't have anyone else buying into this and it was just me doing this? And, you know, what would this look like? What would my strategy, what would my growth look like? Um, so I think that's been really big takeaway is just be intentional about where your capital is coming from and be sure that your model supports that um you know if it's to go raise funding amazing what does that look like um you know if it's bootstrapping what does that look like and just being really intentional about those approaches is yeah. where the trouble comes in <laughs> i i i would like i think whole, i would 100 percent agree with you in what you just said because i know a lot of people who just think like like it, you read the headlines like a startup did hundred million dollars in a round. And it's like, okay, what have they made? Like, what, what are they doing? Yeah, like, you know, it's yeah. like them, you getting, it's like, uh, Don made $14 today. Okay. <laughs> but like, yeah. is, is that any less or more impressive than someone who like pulled in a hundred million from a thing? Like maybe if $14 was like the first sale, like that's a really big deal. Um, but like, exactly. Yeah. Just, like, these big numbers, they think that's important. It's like, that's not the number that's important. Like, and I think what you're saying is yeah. really critical because like every company has an important number. Like eBay is like how much, um, stuff they sell. Like same with Amazon, like how much stuff can they ship to people? I guess like maybe Amazon prime, like is the important number for them right now. And if, if your important <laughs> number is like how much money people can give you without you building anything pretty much. Um, I think that's weird. And it, like, I think it creates like this false relationship yes. like, I'd, rather, I'd rather like if i needed to like make a pre-sale to someone or sell someone something be like all right i'm gonna give you a discount because i don't have a built now but i'm gonna build it i'm gonna give it to you and it's gonna be this good like then it's like okay mm -hmm. i have to like mm -hmm. earn that money versus like if that if someone just gives me money to build the thing to potentially find a customer it's like that feels so weird like that's such a weird mm -hmm. cycle and I, I mean like in a lot yeah. of situations like you have to do it like it just makes sense or like for whatever reasons you have the connections mm -hmm. and uh you have the the go vision to do it because it is like a lot of it's like gasoline like it can really set a fire ablaze but like mm. i i feel like it, it it creates like a really weird relationship with money where like the important part mm -hmm. is making mm -hmm. like raising the money and it's like I, you need to have money so you can have a staff and stuff but like customers i don't know maybe i'm just like going around in circles but i feel like this creates like a yeah. weird dichotomy no yeah i i agree 100 percent. i think what you're just saying too about the headlines we look at that and we're like wow that's amazing. And then, you know, if you look and actually track their, their real revenue, it might it's not going to match that, you know, often, you know, that's not always true, but um, we, we definitely have a dichotomy between the numbers that are flashy that we see in their fundraising and the actual sales and, and those valuable metrics. Um, and it's, it's really a part of the kind of the sexy entrepreneurship culture that we have that is uh, a little bit, straight away sometimes from the practicality of just making money. <laughs> if you're doing it the right way, being smart, hopefully there's an impact, but are you actually making money? Mm -hmm. There was a, there's a good example where I think it's called Juicera where they, they raised a, like a, 
you know what this? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love this example. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. Like what? <laughs> you could squeeze it and get the same result as your juicer, your fancy juicer. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 for people not, uh, who are not familiar, basically they raised money, never spoke to a customer and they failed. <laughs> like They got all this money and it did not work. Like I, I think that's how it worked, right? Like it didn't even do what they wanted it to yeah. do. Like they failed on making a squeezer of juice. Yeah. Like, yeah. hundred million dollars. You should be able to make like AI or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's like, again, that goes back to what are you creating? What is your vision? And you know, what's, where's that money, money actually going? Because if they're, you know, raising lots of money without any follow-up or the actions behind it, what is it really going to? So, so being intentional, I feel like that was a really valuable lesson and it's making us, it's making our decisions more challenging, but also more intentional, um, as we work on growing and, and increasing our contracts and growing our team. All right, sweet. So I feel like that's enough setup to learn more about Hiveland because we've been like talking around it a little bit, The um, <laughs> what, and compared to like when you first started it and you, you co-founded it. What would what did that vision look like for what you wanted to build, and how has that changed over the years to what it is now, to where you can be a full time person working on it? Like, is it the same mm-hmm. vision? Is it the same similar execution, and it's just taking time? Like, 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 tell us, like, how? Hit, yeah, how yeah. Um, a lot of what it began as, so it's it's honestly it hasn't changed because it's been a very simple thing. Um, what we end up getting a lot of the questions on is how is this going to grow? How is this going to scale? Um. I should start with what it is. Highland is an online platform that connects beekeepers and farmers to facilitate uh, sustainable pollination. So we're uh, kind of an online bee brokering platform. Um, but the the goal has really always just been just connecting beekeepers and farmers in close proximity. Um, and our, our first fulfilled contracts were last spring or spring 2019, because um, we had worked first to build the platform, then do outreach to people, um, to get people on it. And then just last spring started fulfilling those contracts, but it's really, um, it hasn't, hasn't gone past that. There've been a few conceptual iterations of, all right, if we're not selling these contracts, because it took a while for us to kind of get that moving, should we be, you know, finding a way to get people, you know, honey sales and taking a portion of that? Should we be looking at other, um, verticals for, for income in the meantime? But, um, after we got our first contract, we realized, hey, this is how it's working um, and this is how it can work so we can stick with this until we scale this. The nail it, scale it, scale it approach. We're still in the nail it approach, but we're uh, definitely, definitely nailing it. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many contracts or like what type of volume you have to do before you hit profitability if you haven't hit that already? Um, we, yeah, we've actually already hit because we were bootstrapping. Um, we are at profitability right now, but we are trying to work a sustainable perspective. So I'm full-time, but only like very, as in last week recently. Um, so we are really trying to get 10 more of our average size contracts. And those can range from anywhere to 30 to $80,000. Um, so we're trying to get, obviously scale that. But more than anything, it's about users on our platform and where they are location-wise. So we're really focusing building out specific geographical locations so that we can work with those contracts as a recurring revenue. What are some of the areas? Like if, if someone's listening and they're like, 
I want to check this out. Maybe I, they're in the right area. <laughs> what, what are the yeah. couple you're checking out? Yeah, so we're focused right now on Mid-Atlantic and Central Valley in California. So a lot of that is almonds in California area, but also strawberries. Um, and then the Mid-Atlantic, a lot of that is like watermelons, um, also berries. Um, and then we have a little bit of work in orchards in the Midwest right now. But the um, yeah, if there are farmers, beekeepers interested, um, hiveblend.com, check it out. We've got to sign up for both beekeepers and farmers. Um, and, you know, just keeping people uh, engaged as we build those, um, both the farmer and beekeeper sides, but then also uh, working to get the word spread. Is that awesome? I think I might be dumb. When you said mid-Atlantic, I pictured like Atlantis, like you were like in the middle of the ocean. And I'm like, 100% <laughs> sure that is not what you mean. You probably mean like Cor- Carolina right. or something. So like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so like uh, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, okay. um, and then obviously like the North Carolina. Um, but there's kind of, some people do not consider that mid-Atlantic. Some people consider the Carolinas the South, but that general area uh, is what we're really working to build out right now. A lot of uh, watermelon float growers in North and South Carolina, squash, all kinds of things. So um, it's actually uh, something I'm just writing and building onto our platform right now is uh, for people to understand the crops and those connections to different areas. Cause a lot of people who aren't familiar with agriculture don't realize how many things we grow in each state. That sounds fun. When uh, You said that was recent. Is that already up or is that going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks or? Yeah. Coming out in the next couple of weeks, uh, we're just putting kind of a map, a little more of an interactive map so people can see what's going on um, in different areas of the country. Cause I think we think a lot of stuff comes from, um, California when it, we're getting it from all over. Can you, can you, this is like a random tangent, but can you imagine how like much food we'd produce if the Dust Bowl didn't happen? Like the Midwest was just like, like that was such a horrible event. And yet like, just it kind of like off the same event, like idea, like a lot of people think we get all these things from like California, like the, a couple of states, but we don't, I mean, we don't even necessarily get all of our citrus oranges from Florida anymore because of citrus greening. Like they've been wiped out for the most part. So like you have all these other states yeah. like contributed in, which made me think of uh, all this happened in like one second, but like made me think of like the Dust Bowl and like just imagine like what the Midwest would be like if we didn't have to spend like all these decades like repopulating it and like making it nutritious again so like we can actually grow interesting things. But I don't know yeah, if you ever think about yeah, stuff exactly. like that with your background is in homeschooling and uh, uh, beekeeping. I don't know if you ever wonder like what things would look like in uh, these alternate worlds where we didn't open up the world open up the ground and let like the air mess with it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to, to kind of to explore that aspect, but then also to see, and like, there's so much of the, what if, what if we didn't become, you know, an agricultural society? What if we just stuck with, you know, being hunters and gatherers, people say that would be less impactful, but you know, the direction that we have it, we can still go back to a lot of those regenerative practices. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more we're going back to regenerative agriculture, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the, for people to understand like how important like the Dust Bowl or any of these things are and regenerative agriculture, uh, there's this passage in the book uh, of the Bible, not, you know, it is a book, not the book, but the, depend, I guess depending <laughs> on your perspective, it is the book, but, um, and it talks about the land of milk and honey. That is basically present day Iraq. And so when you imagine Iraq, it's very deserty. 
And that is because they did not have regenerative uh, agriculture practices. They still have grain. You know, it's the land of Mesopotamia, the land of like the crescent, it's something like the crescent moon, crescent something. Uh, I don't know. Fertile crescent. There you go. Uh, the fertile crescent. Like, <laughs> it used to be like, you know, the bedrock of like where civilization came from because it was so agriculture rich and they didn't do a good job stewarding it. And it, you know, for thousands of years and like it had problems like they are doing better now and it's going to get better. But like, if we didn't do that, like imagine like a giant desert in the Midwest or any other problem, if you don't have regenerative agriculture, if it's not regenerating, it's going away. And every year, like you're eating mm-hmm. things that are taken from that environment. So like every piece of corn takes nutrients from the, you know, the ground. And if you're just taking that away every year, like eventually the nutrients that are supporting that corn are not going to be there and then they die uh, or they don't work as well. And it's not good. Um, which is why, like, if you notice in the countryside, you'll see like crop rotations, like soybeans and stuff, because then they'll put in what the other crops take out. But uh, back to Hiveland, the I know you mentioned that you you uh, are very interested in learning and talking with more like farmers and stuff like that. And sometimes, like, you try calling them and uh, having these conversations. But what are, um, what are some of the other pain points or struggling things that you're working with uh, that you're struggling with right now that maybe someone listening could give you advice on, or maybe we could brainstorm some ways to solve it now. I don't know. Uh, but what are some things that you're struggling with or like currently like pushing the envelope on that you'd love either a person to know about to just, you know, show some appreciation for like that hidden struggle that they maybe not don't see or to help, help, uh, help out on. Um, that's actually a really good question. I think one of the big things, obviously, as I mentioned, getting in touch with farmers and connecting with them is one of our, our biggest challenges just because it's something that's really more word of mouth um, or a space that's more word of mouth. But um, also, I think a, a big thing is um, exploring, and this is maybe more of a kind of just a brainstorm aspect, but um, exploring more of an integrated approach to pollination. So what we do now is um, connect beekeepers and farmers. Um, those beekeepers are usually only keeping uh, European honeybees, Apis mellifera, which is great. That's our pretty standardized commercial beekeeping practice. Also the same for sideliners and hobbyists. But one thing we're really interested in exploring is um, integrating those bees with um, American Bombus americanus, the American bubble bee, because their um, because their pollination is far more efficient. So they're larger, they've got bigger bodies, they can collect more pollen. It's just like a simple anatomical thing. So I guess the the thing I'm interested in and exploring and would be intrigued to get, you know audience help on and just general assistance is um, we've found a couple people that raise bumblebees, but just seeing, you know, if there's people that know more um, bumblebee raisers, people who are interested in that, or even if anyone has really explored that, um, because that's a path we're going down as we see a lot more research coming out in that. Um, but we are, are very early stages on that front. Hmm. I was, I was reading recently that the bumblebees are pretty, uh, involved I, i'm like avoiding calling them fat but the, they're like like they all these things <laughs> they're, like, they're fabulously fluffy they're fabulously fluffy yeah and they're like really i, I don't know uh, when people when you talk to people about beekeeping do i get this i hear a lot about how like oh they're gonna sting me or do all these things i and this is what i do i'm curious if if you and if you have the same problem and, and like how you interact with people but for anyone listening like definitely contact her if you have any bumblebee related stuff and I'll, there'll be uh, links in the show notes to how to contact her through LinkedIn and stuff. But when people tell me they're afraid of be, uh, bees, I, I actually pick on a bumblebee. I'll like take them out to like a field if they're nearby and I'll like find a bumblebee <laughs> doing his business and I'll poke it off a flower 
And it's the most hilarious thing. Like, you, you do it gently. Like, don't hurt them. But, like, yeah, yeah. you gently poke it off the flower and they go, and then they just go back to their job. They don't care. They're yeah. not going to do anything to you. They don't like, care at all. Try to squish mm-hmm. them. They're the most adorable things. But exactly. I'm just, like, you probably face that to some extent. Like, how do you overcome that? Like, like they're more like afraid of like hornets or something. They just confuse the two. But like, how do you get people over like that? Yeah. They start appreciating bees. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's um. You said exactly what I usually say is if you've been stung, you've probably been stung by a wasp or a hornet, not a bee, because bees die once they sting. So they're really unlikely to sting you. Um. But even if you have, they they did it for a reason. Um. But I love to actually if you take raw honey, so unpasteurized honey, if you take it out of the jar, um. And just go out if there's like dandelions or even just going outside sometimes and like putting the spoon on the porch. These will come because they can like smell the raw honey. They'll come over and start drinking it up. Um, and so you can actually like pet a bee, like putting a little bit of honey on your hand. And then the bee will just come over and with their proboscis just like lick it off, which is so cute, first of all. But it also just shows people like, again, the misconception of something. If you squish it, it might react, but it's just trying to eat and go back to its own home. Um, so I love, I really like doing that and connecting and showing people. Um, I also have the pleasure of volunteering at the Smithsonian on some Saturdays for the insect zoo um, to share about bees and butterflies. And I love when people go from being just like terrified to at least a little bit curious. I think that's a, a highlight. You get to do all these crazy things. You volunteer at the Smithsonian. You get to travel America and learn about uh, startups and stuff like that. That's just awesome. The um, <laughs> and you're uh, I don't know. I'm like generally marveling. That sounds like a lot of fun. And you get to like help out. Are they like like kids that come to the zoo, or is it like you get like a wide host of? People? Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, all kinds of people because it's the. I mean, Smithsonian's just out in D.C. and um, there's like a whole range of people that come. A lot of it is a lot of them are like kids, but it's also like groups of tourists and I my favorite is just showing grown-ups that, like that are think they're going to be less scared of the bugs they're always more scared than the kids are yeah that well I don't know if this is like a weird thing to admit in a re- recorded area but the, when I was a kid and we would, I would <laughs> share stuff at a fair um I probably would not be the based on this reason alone I maybe shouldn't be like a person who educates people at a, a Smithsonian because we I would have we'd have chickens and what I would do is I'd take the chicken, like the hen eggs, and put them in the rooster cages. And then when like city folk would come around, they would say, see kids, the rooster lays the eggs. And I would think that was so funny. <laughs> they don't know. Oh my god! They don't do that. <laughs> I love that. But like, that's probably going to be mean. But like, like not just That's roosters, amazing. Like, I, there's probably like a hundred people out there that think roosters lay eggs because of me. And Oh my god. <laughs> But like at the same time, it's like a thing. But like, um, it's really funny, <laughs> right? I just so sit nearby and I just wait, and they'd be like, "Look, kids, the roosters lay the eggs." And it's like, I have a, uh, I have like the Eiffel Tower to sell you or something like that. Like that's just. But uh, it's oh good that God. you're a nice person and that you you don't know <laughs> people that bees are hornets and hornets are bees. But um, the the. In terms of Hiveland, I know you you mentioned a couple times, and I, I keep mentioning that you you uh, are big on talking to farmers and getting out there and engaging with people. Um, do you do you ever consider like hitting up the farmers markets and using those as next uh, like like nucleuses of building out your campaign versus like talking to people individually? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot of, um, we've done a, a few different approaches. A lot of it is going to conferences that are crop specific. So the National Watermelon Conference or uh, National Potato Conference, um, very fun places, but then farmers markets as well. Um, and one of the things that we found though with farmers markets is those tend to be smaller scale. Um, and a lot of people right now are not renting hives for pollination. Sometimes they'll just have host hives um, for free, which is also works, you know, as long as your pollination needs are met, but we are definitely targeting more of like the mid-sized level farms um, that are, are a little bit bigger than usually what's at the farmer's market. But yeah, that's a, definitely a good idea that we need to go back to that as well, kind of revisit it as we get the word out more. Are you, are you hitting like the resurgent millennial farmers that are like growing in like doing like the micro farms and like urban settings or are you still like countryside farmers where they I think a lot oh, oh sorry go ahead. No, no no go ahead you understood what my question was um a lot of them are more mostly the like in terms of clients we end up connecting um and working a lot more with the older generation of farmers because the smaller scale um like millennial farmers that we're seeing a big start in sub which is super exciting um are usually Usually they go for a permaculture or agroforestry approach that's more regenerative. And that tends to mean that they have their own bees or they, you know, host other people's bees. So they're not really looking for um, renting the hives as much as the large scale agricultural practices are. Hmm. Makes sense. And um, I think I was reading a, a statistic that like in the next, oh, uh, in one year <laughs> that uh, 50% of of uh, family farms like that would be retiring and they didn't have like the next generation ready to go, which hopefully like the millennial can like gap, like bridge that gap. Cause like, they're like, they're like, Hey, we want to farm. And then like the people are like, well, I'm done farming cause I have to retire. So I don't know if you're like seeing like the, the, the aspect of that where like a lot of the farmers are retiring cause they are getting old. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a lot of it is, is just changing too. I mean, you have, like for example the almond groves that's more generational they just pass that down um family member to family member but then you also see a lot more farms getting um you know getting sold off just the same way it has been i think it's interesting i think that like the patterns in our agricultural systems haven't shifted that drastically but we read about them more so there was a period too when like you know two generations back or three generations back they thought farming was going to end um, but then there was a, a, you know, a growth of farming. So I think we're seeing and hearing more news about the shifts in, in, in who's running the farms. But I think to be honest, it's a lot of similar transitions that we saw 50 years ago. Hmm. Well, that's neat. That, that makes me feel better. Cause I read that and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, shoot, I should become a farmer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I still feel that way. Honestly, that's, I think that's my ultimate trajectory after trying to, you know, build work in entrepreneurship, build more social impact work. And then I just want to go live on a farm. The, do you have like a, a desired location that you'd want to have the farm at? Cause like Illinois has really good topsoil. I'm not, <laughs> I talk about it too much, but <laughs> That's yeah, do you a, have a huge selling point, huge selling point. Um, honestly, I think more than anything, I've just been really intrigued. This is just off the cuff. I've not been thinking about this really. Um, I've been working a lot with the beekeepers and the beekeeping collective in West Virginia. And that is some of the most beautiful land I've ever seen. And they're doing some really cool 
uh, regenerative agriculture practices in West Virginia. They're putting a lot more um, sustainable energy, uh, like windmills and solar panels in. So it's it's just a it's state state that's shifting in some really cool ways very quickly. Aren't they being hit? I'm I'm sorry for being negative. Weren't they being hit? Like um, I was watching this opioid epidemic talk. Yes, they, they are they one of the worst. Yeah. yeah. So they yeah, need people. Yeah. Well, and, exactly. And they also yeah, there's been a lot of really interesting changes because you have a lot of people working because they were actually one of the states that was hit the worst by the opioid, epi- opioid epidemic, um, not just in like human lives lost, but also in um, you know, addicted individuals and like loss of livelihood. Um, but they, because of that, I think there's so much focus on how do we, how do we recreate not just an economy, but a community. Um, and a lot of that is happening around these sustainable practices. Not not that quickly, but definitely they are happening there. Yeah. Well, they won't happen if people like you don't go there. You know, like if everyone's like, oh, no, it's West Virginia. Got to stay away from that. You know, like <laughs> it's not going to get you. You know, people got to want to go mm-hmm. there. It's good that the environment mm-hmm. and like uh, the people are still good. They're just like, I think well, we're weird in America where we like view addiction as like a crime when it's it's like like mental illness or or anything else. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, mm-hmm. I don't represent the government anyway, but I feel like we should handle like, you know, a health problem. And not lock people up for having issues like this. But um, yeah, what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it would be better for yeah, people. I agree. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know, if I, I were wholeheartedly. Yeah, if I were to um, if I were to settle down, like my ultimate goal is like we have we're similar people. Like I I want to have like a farmish thing, but like I want mine to be on a peninsula, so I can wall off the section that goes towards you know the land that's attached to it and mm-hmm. put like a porthole in it. So then no one bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I won't even tell cool people island. I live there. Yeah, like it's like it's like I'm. It's not quite like like a recluse on an island. Like I'm still somewhat attached. Mm-hmm. Like people can visit me, but like I won't let them. <laughs> I'll just be like I'll put it in like a trust, and like people won't even know I live there. But it'll be like my house. I like grow stuff and like have like a nice piece of land. And people are like, oh, well, where do you live? And you're like, oh, I'm just this poor person. Don't don't come over to my place. <laughs> it's horrible here. My my little <laughs> corner of the world. Yeah. But, yeah. I probably should be more like you and like pick a pick a spot where I actually have an impact versus like like being a miser and like living in the mountains or something. But um, <laughs> well, that's years off. So maybe we'll maybe we'll all be moving to West Virginia then. <laughs> do they have lakes in West Virginia? As long as it's a peninsula, it's just it has water on three sides. Oh, yeah. It can work for me. The, um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure where, but I know there's some, <laughs> and I've also been only one of them outside of uh, of Charleston. <laughs> the um. For in terms of Highland, like, um, what are the after you talked a little bit about like the future stuff, but I'm curious, like, the next like two to three years, as you're like, you know, two to three years into it now, what do you think is going to change? Like, you you're you're going from like part time to like full time as of a couple weeks ago. So, mm-hmm. in terms of like just like you being a very driven person and being able like to care and like put your energy into it, I imagine there's just going to be like this nice hockey stick of developments. But I'm curious, like, what do you? see coming down the pipeline in the next couple of years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's something we're actually still trying to understand right now with what our next steps are, because um, we uh, know that we can grow this for uh, pollination contracts, but we also want to be kind of the opportunity for sideliners and hobbyists to come and and also commercial beekeepers for a variety of different needs. So starting with the pollination contract space, but also further going into um, sales of honey in a sustainable way because we don't have 
any um, USDA regulated honey restrictions. So we have imports of fake honey, which means these beekeepers get like they get shorted on the value of their real honey because we have a lot of you know adulterated honey coming into the U.S. So mm-hmm. kind of even on that front of like, well, can we address that as an issue? Um, and then you know the general health of hives can be improved from these contracts and from a good practice of a pollination economy. And so that's what we really want to work on is, yeah, we're building these contracts, but what are the implications? Are we seeing crop yield increase, you know, the next year, the following years? Are we seeing healthier hives because we are not forcing them to travel as far or because we are, you know, integrating them with different newer beekeeping practices? So I'm starting with a very simple concept so that we can build on it um, in a way that really does address the larger systemic issues of our pollination economy and beekeeping in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. The, that's, you know, there's some people that's like beekeeping, like peaked at like 1910, and they just want all the technology to be that way. And then, and uh, you mm-hmm. know, like, which is good and, and bad. And then there's like, you still need to innovate. And I like that you're like innovating, but at the same time doing it in a way that is like, you know, very much a sustainable thing. Like you're not like, doing a bunch of work and then like being like, Hey, we'll analyze as, as we go. It's like in a, in a, like a very much like farmer centric way of like slowly integrating out, but uh, kind of mm-hmm. tying back to the beginning, you, you said when you were younger um, that you were sick for a, a bit. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. if that has at all made you think about like your legacy, like what you'll be leaving behind and like made you more of this socially conscious person. Or mm-hmm. if that has in any way impacted how you pick and choose what you're doing, how you went ended up in venture for America or Hiveland or as a freelance writer or mm-hmm. anything like that. Like, do you, cause like, I know like I was sick for a while and it's genetic. So like, it's never really going to go away. So, but it, it helps me <laughs> as negative as it is, it helps me like kind of like sift like this is going to make me a lot of money, but it's not going to really bring a lot of value to me personally or to the community. I'm not going to do that. Cause like you don't really have that much time. So I'm curious like to what extent, yeah. like, yeah, your mind has been molded by that. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think that I something I haven't thought about much, but I feel like um, I, I feel like it definitely plays a big role in it. And I haven't really thought about that in the same direct way. I think for me, it was just more like life seems a lot shorter. As I talk to older mentors, I talk to people who are experienced and really far in their careers. They all just tell me life is too short to, you know, do something you don't love you're not passionate about um of course the conflict there is that doesn't always make you money but it is you know it's it's about how you spend your time and if if that's at the end of the day like you're saying leaving a legacy in a space that you are are passionate about or even just care about doesn't have to be your life's work or passion but something you do care about um then you can look back on that with a lot more pride Uh, because we never know what's going to happen i i think that I hadn't really realized, but you might be making a really good point that uh, term when you face your terminality at a younger age, you, or, you know, when you face that you are a human at a younger age, then you, uh, you probably take that, carry that with you for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, well, the other day, my girlfriend and I were talking and we're, we're both above 25. Like, she's 26, I'm 27. And I was saying like, you know, we're closer to being 50 than we are to being one. And she was like, what? That's <laughs> It's like, yeah, it goes by. <laughs> it goes by real fast. Let's appreciate it. And uh, she was it like, does. I hate, yeah. yeah. And like, I don't know. 
based on like the demographics of this podcast, most people here are closer to 50 than they are to zero, uh, zero one. So it's a, an important, even if you haven't, you know, you luckily enough have been very healthy or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Read them answers, search for meaning, like figure out like what's important to you. Cause like it, you know, you only have so much, even with all of the cool mm-hmm. length, longevity stuff that's coming out. Um, you don't have that much, but I know one of the things you wanted to talk to is this, uh, talk about is this idea of psilocybin and you've actually met Paul Stammers who was on the Joe Rogan podcast, but I was curious if there mm-hmm. was anything that, uh, for people listening that, uh, I don't think about it and not the most positive light. Like what are some of the things that helps, helped you see that it had potential? Um, so, well, definitely like all across the board, I'm fascinated by mycology and Paul Stamets also, um, released a pretty cool, um, extract of the polypore mushroom, which is like reishi and amadu, that are help to increase the immunity of bees. So obviously, I'm a huge fan on that front. Um, but with the psilocybin, I think it's something that's really fascinating because we've always used medicine that is somehow naturally inspired, or I would say 90% of the time, our medicine is naturally inspired. We took you know, quinine from trees for treating malaria or for preventing malaria. We took aspirin from the bark of trees as well. You know, we use medicinal compounds that are always originally derived from plants. And then we end up synthesizing them. But when there's a really, really powerful psychoactive compound, we we are very scared of it. So um, lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, psilocybin, mushrooms, we are nervous because it has a really strong impact on people's minds. Um, but I think in the same way that we see really strong pharmaceuticals do that, these natural or nutraceuticals in psilocybin also have a positive, big benefit that we're just underestimating by keeping them regulated. I, I like the story that Paul tells about how he first discovered it. Like he had some fungi growing in his like wood, uh, like it, mm-hmm. it wood and it was growing in there. And then his, he was like, he saw that the bees were like, drinking the or like playing with the 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 fungi he's like well that's weird and then he uh started paying attention to his hive a little bit more and then he realized that they were like they were doing better than anything else and he has a lot of stories like that because it's just such an untapped field where like um he'll just be like yeah uh it seemed to work out so i dug into a little bit more and like now we have like this really cool application that no one thought was coming like there was a like there's that story of how he first realized the bee thing and then there's another one where um, instead of like actually screening chemicals, like compounds, he like, he sent in a, like three random ones from a fungi that he was studying and each of them had a better ability to like prevent or, uh, pre- prevent or attack like polio or something. I forget what the actual, uh, disease was, but like it had like a better ability to like affect a positive change in like this disease state. And it was just like, he didn't like actually, he didn't like spend millions of dollars to like pick the individual chemicals or uh, compounds. He just picked three randomly in, in this uh, fungi and sent it off. And it's just like, I love the fact that like, it's like a positive neg- negative in the sense, like it's positive because there's like so many different opportunities and it's untapped so that people can get into it like Paul or, or like you who are interested in it and show like, hey, there's some really cool things going on. And it, But it's negative in the fact that we've spent all this time not you know mining that mine and how many people's lives have been negatively affected because they didn't have them in their lives as like tools to help them with whatever's going on. But I don't know, do you have like a a favorite uh, uh, psilocybin story or uh, 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 yeah, I don't know. I I always like stories because like they kind of like tell the story, which is like Mm -hmm. obvious, but you know, like, do you have a a favorite one? 
Yeah. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because I've only just started playing with like these mushrooms and seeing how they help the tides. Um, I, but I do think, um, definitely not a story, but a fun aside is just thinking of um, a lot of different beekeeping practices have to be kind of bridged and we everyone has their own opinions on you know how we're doing it with different chemicals treatments you know I'm very supportive of all different forms because everyone has their own way of doing it but um I think one cool thing that is something Paul brings up as well is sharing just information sharing you know all of us are doing practices that we need to see what works and then get open source all of that information. It shouldn't be, hey, my bees are doing better. I'm going to keep this a secret. We need to open source this so that we see incredible, incredible benefits that we know we can see when we're all sharing our research and our experiences and our information. Like what he's doing. He's sharing the uh, treatment for free. Yeah. I like open source as a concept, but then sometimes I wonder if like having some element of like like closed source or like the what normal people do but then like helping control who gets it so like it you know like it doesn't go to like random people but then like in, in the sense of beekeeping i think maybe there isn't any downside to anyone having that information but i always wonder like is there any like loss or any value in keeping it somewhat restricted so that it can be guided into the right hands who who can better make use of it like researchers and stuff like that but it's not like the launch codes mm-hmm. so like there's no real sense with beekeeping <laughs> So. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very opinionated space and, and it's not all research based. So it's mm-hmm. definitely, it's good that we share information because I think more and more we can make it research based. Um, but it's a lot of experiential story sharing right now. Mm-hmm. Actually a fun anecdote is uh, I knew this uh, Dean of a hospital and she had older doctors that really liked doing exper- experience based medicine uh, and a lot of younger doctors and not all the older doctors were this way. They also did some evidence-based practices as well, but like, if we're just being really simple so I can make my story, the, some of the older ones, some of the, I guess I shouldn't make it age. Some of the, some of the doctors wanted experience. Some of them wanted, uh, evidence-based, but like the Dean and everyone was like, you know, evidence is better because evidence leads to you to not have as many mistakes. And it's, I mean, it's evidence. I feel like you'd want evidence if someone's going to treat you. And so they, these doctors yeah. would be like, all right, you have syphilis or whatever. Here's the same pill I've been giving everyone uh, for the last 20 years. And then another doctor would be like, oh, you have, you know, syphilis. Here's like five different, you know, here are the three options you have here. They're like the positive and negatives um, based on the research. Which one do you think would be better? Like they kind of like give you like this, like a uh, buffet of options, which is really good. And so like mm-hmm. evidence-based gives you those options if everyone is just experience-based, they're kind of doing whatever, like, you know, like, oh, they go outside and their knee tingles. I guess that like predicted the rain, you know, like like, maybe true, maybe Mm -hmm. not. Like what are the evidence for it so that we can replicate that and then, you know, find all the knee knee tinglers and then predict the weather wherever we go, you know, like, cause, (laughs) which is like a weird, Mm -hmm. weird Mm -hmm. but um, evidence-based is really, really important. And if you can think about it from a medical standpoint, you'd want a doctor who looked at all the research, looked at you, broke it down and made sure that you had use their experience, to like filter it, but at the same time, like used the, the information in evidence-based way and the bees deserve the same way. And so does everyone else in my opinion as well. But, uh, the cool thing yeah. is evidence is the best way. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's a very, uh, yeah. <laughs> way. but so, um, yeah, I have a few last questions and these are questions I always like to ask of everyone. Um, so what, and it's okay to take a second cause some of them are weird, but 
what is a question that you have that you don't have the answer to, but that you love the answer to? And so to give you some time to think, the one that I use all the time, and I think you probably even heard this in Elliot's episode is, I wonder if like, if the Big Bang made the universe, if I were to go back in time and like metaphorically shoot the Big Bang in the head, so like it wouldn't, you know, have a life, what would be here out <laughs> of it? You know, like the, I wonder about these things. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I actually do have one. And I think a lot of it is based on um, one, my obsession with Yuval Harari and agricultural history and agrarian societies, but also based on uh, Daniel Graham's book, um, Story of Bee and then Ishmael in reverse order. Mm. I would love to know what would have become of our society if we had not chosen uh, to move to an agricultural society? Would we eventually have done that just a thousand years later? Or, you know, what, what would society look like? Would we still be the kind of symbiotic hunter gatherers that we presumed we were? Or would there be different issues? So I feel like that one would be really interesting to see um, a different, if a story was written differently than it is right now for a society mm-hmm. through agriculture. I feel like we're pretty lazy, so we probably would eventually develop our agriculture because, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's basically it. But we were like, I don't want to work. <laughs> not, I don't, not really. Everyone, like, yes, it is. It's so much more work. Everyone thinks it's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I mean, we go to the grocery store, but well, ultimately, it, it's I'll send you my analysis of this. Okay, I would like that. I, if, 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 I were, if you had to spend all this time going out and hunting caribou, and I could just like grow some wheat in my backyard. And you wipe out all the caribou. My wheat is still good. And like I can make bread. Like I feel like, but, it, I feel like the lazy factor. But go ahead. I, you have an argument. I, I, I want to hear it. <laughs> well, nutritionally, you're less diverse. So the work per nutrition ratios are like completely different. So if you have hunting gathering, it's going to take a lot more effort to go hunt a caribou. But then you are, you've got like a team effort. You're all working together. So you're building community. You hunt and then that lasts for a very long time. And then you gather and you're like, have a more diverse um, nutritional panel that you're working from. Whereas you spend that same amount of time growing, getting the wheat water, planting it, making sure you can wait for it, but you still have a different result nutrition wise. You don't have as dynamic of uh, options on the nutrition. This is, this is totally something we could take offline. Okay. No, it's all I good. I like, I like it because I think we disagree, but like we, yeah. like I agree and disagree because like, I agree like diversity <laughs> is really good but then I disagree in that I think farming's probably better um because mm-hmm. it's, just, it's like it's like a you can kind of expect it like we're like you could potentially like wipe out the caribou and then you don't have any more caribou um and I don't think we'd have modern society like we wouldn't have like rockets going to Mars or the you know, advanced research institutions like helping people with cancer and stuff like that because like you wouldn't have like the population density and like the specialized um skills to allow for that because like farming allowed like other people to like free up their days so they could like work together to build other things so i feel like on the whole it's probably like a net positive um and then we could like like now we could like circle back and be like hey we're gonna be diversified in our food paleo diet you know and and then um you know compensate for that but i feel like if we never did farming it's kind of like we never realized that like heating our water and not like going to the bathroom in our water supply was uh is is a bad thing you know like -hmm. like, we didn't know that for the longest time but mm-hmm. now knowing it, like we don't die from dysentery. Um, yeah. Like that, like we probably could have gotten along just fine um, with dysentery, but like it's good. 
<laughs> without it. But not, <laughs> to like, it yeah. not to not to equate your points to dysentery, which is unfair. But you raise good. Well, I, I guess. Do you view modern society as like a, a boon, like like a good thing, or do you do you not like? Modern yeah, society? yeah, that's kind of. I mean, I I definitely I think I benefit immensely from the current state of modern society. So this is definitely an aside. Um, like I definitely wouldn't do as well in a hunter gatherer, but I do wonder if some of the things that we find as um, you know issues, like a lot of the health issues, a lot of the um, this is very high level theoretical, nothing like hard fast and but a lot of the issues that we do have sometimes health-wise, community-wise, socially is perfect. Like a lot of the issues that we have, I think could be sourced back to our distance that we're going from normal society as a community-based structure into, and I, I think a lot of it does go back to our agricultural history, but that's also just like my personal soapbox and also curiosity because we don't know what we don't know, mm. um, especially about what like trajectory things would be going um, but we should, we should definitely continue this conversation because I would love to share with you what I have kind of drafted up as a theoretical, non-agriculturally based society. Sweet. I look forward to it. <laughs> I, I, I think, I don't know why this is, but like, I feel like nowadays, like no one can have like a different opinion. Like if you like felt vehemently your way and I was like vehemently against it, like apparently like we're not allowed to talk about it. Like how, like if you like listen to like the news or something. Like we don't talk about anything anymore. Yeah. I love it when people disagree with me because then I can learn about something I don't know. It's like, I don't think I'm That's right true. all the time. I'm probably right like 10% if I'm lucky. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So like, but I feel like, yeah. like, you know, if I was like, if you're like a random person I was talking to on the street, I'd be worried because I'd be like, oh, I say the wrong thing. And now I'm like, mm-hmm. me to a lady or something. I don't know. But like, like yeah. it's so enjoyable to talk to someone who thinks something differently than you. Because then I can, I get mm-hmm. to experience your entire life. And like the little bit of that that uh that thoughts because it goes back to like your childhood and all these other things it's fantastic but like if you if you like and i know like social media and all these things kind of like create like these small echo chambers and people like slowly slowly um transition into them and then you don't get these other things and then you don't like you don't really grow like your mind basically is the same and i think that's i think a sad thing is if you're if you're the same way every year i think you should always try and grow and push yourself to be different not different like mm-hmm. if you're completely content with yourself i'd be completely content if that is your actualization but like i think it's always fun to like try different things and like hear other people's things but i feel like you can't really do that nowadays but mm, that's so I true yeah i don't know if yeah. you've experienced that but i i get i experience it to some extent and i i usually just choose to ignore it and then debate the person anyway because I, I i enjoy listening to people um i wish more people would uh <laughs> But hopefully you haven't. But on, on the sense of a, actually, this is one of the questions I wanted. Uh, I wanted to ask. Um, do you? Because I, I talk to a lot of female founders as well. Um, not particularly in purpose. On purpose, I just talk to a lot of people, and you know, I try to keep it fifty-fifty. To be fair, based on the gender split. But do, is it? Do you get any weirdness or any like? If you had to like deal with any oddities by being a female founder, I know I have. Uh, I talked to one person where I mentioned this either in the in the beginning of this talk or when we were talking separately where like they went to a pitch and there was, she was the CEO and her friend was the CTO, the science guy. And they were like, mm-hmm. one of the, the, one of the VCs was like, well, are you guys dating? And she's, she's like, no. Uh, well, are you guys related? <laughs> no. Uh, have you guys ever dated? No. And she's like, well, you gotta, you gotta put that on the, the, your pitch deck. And it's like, what is this a dating profile? Like, what do you, what? Like, yeah. you know, it's like, what? yeah, it's so weird, but I'm That's just curious, funny. like what type of, yeah, hopefully I, nothing. I mean, like, 
<laughs> we haven't gotten that one yet. Well, actually, we've gotten a question, not at a pitch competition. Um, we A lot of it is like, how did you guys meet each other? Um, which it, I think is a funny structuring as opposed to like, what just what how did you decide to build this company or like the, the the conversations and questions are usually structured a little differently um and i think maybe as an attempt to get out like did you date but no one's asked that that pointedly um because my co-founder and i male female we have not dated we are in fact just co-founders um, <laughs> didn't but it's, it. <laughs> it's so it's i think it's hard for people to understand that um because uh, I'm actually not sure why I would just go ahead and chalk that one up to not understanding that females can run companies maybe, but, um, I, I don't know. That's a funny one. I definitely know though, the ag tech space, like at the last competition we were at, um, I pitched at, it was all, uh, males in the ag tech space and older males, white often. Um, and so it was kind of fun to, you know, walk away with the first place and, to see like, hey, yeah, I did this. I worked hard and I know what I'm doing. And just because I didn't get the same, you know, treatment from all the other guys that were there because they all knew each other. Um, we definitely still are, are able and capable of building something and growing it and scaling it and creating a, a thriving concept in a less than female space. Mm -hmm. I think this is from a historical standpoint, I think it's weird that we ever devalued like female contribution. Cause like, that's kind of assuming like you're an alien to me. Like I'm a guy, you're a woman. Like we are not, like we have the <laughs> same brain, you know, like our brains are like these beautiful, complex, amazing things that can build like nuclear bombs to beehives. Like we can do all these things. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's weird that like for the longest time or like in different segments of society, like we devalued that even to some extent, I guess we somewhat devalue that like stay at home moms or dads, like we devalue the, that contribution to society. But like, even though like, a state a stay-at-home parent like actually contributes quite a lot because like they're, they're taking care of their kid versus like having to pay someone and you they people pay like a hundred dollars a day to, like have someone take care of their kids which is weird like there's almost more than what they'd make going to work so that makes a lot of financial sense but i think it's weird that we ever like someone ever like looked across mm -hmm. the road uh, across the you know the table and saw a person with like blonde you know like long hair or whatever hair and that was you know, whatever female look, looking and thought you're not as good as me. So you're not allowed to go to school yeah. or whatever. It's like, how much do we miss out on? Like how many like yeah. genius people weren't able to develop their genius stuff because we were like, not the right gender check and like, yeah. on. like it's just yeah. the saddest thing. Like society is made better when all of us can contribute. Um, exactly. I yeah. agree wholeheartedly. Well, you should. You're biased. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're part of the. <laughs> you're I am definitely right. a little biased on that front. Yeah, <laughs> but it, 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 like I always try to like rationalize things from like a, like I don't know, like a logic or like from an economic standpoint. Like if if you have if you have a guy and a girl, and only one of them is producing for the economy, then like you only get half. But if both people do it, you get double. <laughs> like that's that, that's yeah. The, yeah. Like, think about it like. You know, if, if like if you can produce two apples and I can produce, this is a weird. Everyone gets this. I feel like that, like most people should not argue this at all. Like it should be understood. But um, if people do have a different view of opinion uh, opinion on this, feel free to email me and I will gently talk to you about it and not tell you. <laughs> but uh, so we talked about this a little bit, and I'm glad to hear that um, not being a I mean being a female founder is not one of them. But what is a problem you're currently having that you'd love help with? You, you mentioned a couple of them, but this could be like, personally, maybe you have a problem not finding a good book or good Hamilton tickets or something. But, um, uh, what is a problem that you'd love help with? 
Actually, you gave me a really good idea. Um, I am looking for more um, sustainable ag books. So I just love reading. Um, trying to think of the last, the most recent example. Um, I've been going through a bunch of different um, ecology books recently. Mm. And then my most recent one that I just finished was The Fate of Food. Really loved that one. Um, so if there's just more books that people have to recommend on agricultural practices, because I know my space, but I feel like there's also other aspects like vertical farming that I haven't been learning about um, and newer different space that is opening up. That's a whole other world. So if anyone has good book recommendations or podcast recommendations, including yours, been listening to more, um, I would love, love, love those. Sweet. The, I should know a few people. I'll ping them and see if I can find some books for you as well. The, and the, going on the book idea, do you have books that you tend to gift? Or if you do not give people books, um, what is something you tend to gift people that is either related to beekeeping or just nerdy about yourself? But hopefully books that I like Ooh. to read too. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I feel like my go-to book, and this I think this might be a little bit of a cop-out just because I don't know if everyone gives it away, but maybe they do. Um, Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, absolutely phenomenal book, and I gift that with high frequency um, because it's just a really good reminder of like, you know, taking things one by one, that things do work out, um, but also, you know, of adventure and exploration. Um, that's definitely like my go-to book. But recently I've been really on the, uh, the like kind of psychology game in terms of um, psychological development. So defining decade, that's an old throwback from like 2008, I think. Um, I've gifted that twice in the past month. So it's been actually a perfect question for this time of year. I feel like there's a lot of gifts to be given. Mm-hmm. The, I like the, in the Alchemist book, the, the story, like the old man trying to help his son understand what happiness is, which is like sad in of itself mm-hmm. that the, the dad needed the felt that he needed to go outside to help his son with something that maybe he didn't understand fully. Um, Mm-hmm. Then he like goes and like all oh, that entire story is so like beautiful and illustrating like I don't want to give it away, but people should read it. It's a good book. And like it talks about happiness. <laughs> so if, if you ever wonder, like, am I happy? Which maybe would make you feel unhappy by questioning it, but check it out. It really does help with meaning. And I definitely would echo the man's search for meaning with that book as well. But um let's see. The um, I can think that's do you have a favorite quote? I've been asking this of people, but I don't get good answers. So I think I might just stop asking it. But do you have like a favorite quote Ooh. that you like sharing? I do, but it's definitely like a, a, it's more like a cheesy, like poetic quote, but I'm, I'm just going to use it anyways. Um, it's, if there's magic in the world, it's contained in water. Or I guess if it's on this planet. Oh, God, I should get it right. Um, it's a Lauren Isley, the poet. Um, but just like a good, a fun, a fun little quote about, you know, the life that is sustained by water. And that was Don, co-founder of Hiveland. Check her out at hiveland.com and the show notes for any links and to learn more about what she's working on. She asked for some help in there. So I hope that everyone kind of sends her an email or writes a tweet or shares this around. So she knows that there's people out here who really love and appreciate what she's working on. So if there's someone that you want to have me interview, let me know. I will add them. There's still a little room and I'm filling, finishing it up, but you should get a lot of beat content this month. 
They talk about Bee Week, we're getting a Bee Month. Additionally, remember to check out in the show notes the link to the website for the crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be running soon. If you've liked the, the podcast, if you've liked the episode, if you want to help out, check the link, sign up, share it with your friends, and every every person, every time you get someone to sign up, any of this type of information is another chance that you're going to win. One of the things that I'm making, and what I'm making is basically a modern beehive. I'm talking stainless steel, aerogel insulation, sensors, uh, data analytics, all that stuff, easily accessible 24-7, and that's going to be the crowdfunding campaign, but don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.